right, good morning. Good morning. Wow, good crowd, I like it. Uh, this morning we are going to uh, talk about some of the history of the church, and we're going to look at the un, what I call the unbroken chain. And the reason for doing that is to, to strengthen our faith and also give us an idea of history because those who fail to learn the list the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them, right? That's what they say. And what we're going to see throughout this, uh, this series, I'm going to, I think it's going to be two lessons probably, is we're going to see history repeated time and again, and what we'll find is we're in the midst of, of history repeating itself again uh, in, in the history of the church. And so we're going to take a look at this. Uh, I think that... In general, people have a pretty good understanding of the history of the church and that it was founded in Acts chapter 2, right? And it started in Jerusalem, just as it was prophesied. It came with power, the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jeff. And, uh, and then that spread throughout the whole world. And we see that in Colossians 1.23. We see it in Romans 16:19 it talks about the fact that it went through the whole world the gospel was spread throughout the world almost immediately after acts chapter 2 we see persecution right we see those resisting the truth and that's acts chapter 4 and of course acts chapter 5 and we see the stoning of stephen and acts chapter 6 and that continued up until what I call the time of corruption. Now, this corruption was predicted. We look in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. Now, I, we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that day of Christ is at hand, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. This idea of a falling away from the church, it is clearly possible to be saved and then to fall away, and it is also possible for the church to be established, but there to be a massive falling away. And that is what has happened in the world. At first, we see introduction of some kind of cultish things that are happening, and then eventually the establishment of the state religion, which became what we know as the, the Catholic Church. Uh, over time, that split off into denominationalism, right? We see all these different groups, all these different beliefs. Oftentimes, they will get along with each other, even though they have varying beliefs, but they will not get along with us. They do not get along with those who are trying to follow the New Testament. Even though we try to live peaceably with all men as much as it is in us, right? That's a commandment that we have. We are to try to live peaceably. But you'll find that even when you try to live peaceably, but you're living by the Word of God, there will be those who persecute you and who rise up against you. 
And that is what we see. And then there's sort of this idea that we have. Sorry about the font issues I have there, but we have the Restoration Movement. We understand that period of history where there were men like Alexander Campbell and uh, Stone and, and others who were going back to the Bible and they were trying to figure out where did we go wrong here in this denominationalism? What, what does the Bible say? And let's follow the Bible. Let's be people who are just following what the New Testament says about the church. And we understand that period of history, that what we call the Restoration Movement, the growth of the church in the 1940s and 50s, where we were one of the fastest growing religious bodies in the world, where we were spreading the gospel, we were being very evangelistic, and we were converting people left and right, and the church was growing. And then we have the church today, and we understand sort of that period of history, but there's this section where I think a lot of people in the church just really don't know a whole lot about our history, and that is that time period from that corruption as the church started to fall away up until the Restoration Movement, and that's what I want to take a look at today. Now, Jesus said when he was actually on a retreat with his disciples, mainly the apostles, He was going up north to get away from the persecution they were facing and the huge crowds that were following them. And he went up to uh, this region that is is really kind of paganistic. And so a lot of people didn't follow him up there. And it was a retreat up to what's called, uh, uh, it's an area where they worship Pan. And there was actually a cave there that was the, gates of Hades. Uh, and that's where he makes this statement in Matthew sixteen eighteen, where he says, after Peter confesses him as the Christ, he says, I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, shall not prevail against it. Now, Jesus said he was going to found his church, and he did in Acts chapter 2. And he said, the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, will not prevail against it. That means that the church did not just go out of existence from the time that the corruption happened happened until what we call the Restoration Movement. It was not that Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone and these guys found the church that had been dead for hundreds of years and restored it. That's not the case. The case is that the church existed from the first century up until now, unbroken. And we're going to take a look at that time period from the second century up until the 19th century. We're going to be looking at what we call traces of the church. Very early on, the church was attacked. And when it was attacked, there were four main areas that pagans would attack the church, particularly Romans, were attacking the church based on four different areas. This is where they came at us. They said that the church of Christ that is following this Jesus, they are atheists. They said that they are incestuous. They said that they kill their own children and that they are even cannibals. That's what they said about the church. Now, why would they say things like that? Well, they said that we were atheists because we refused to worship 
other gods, right? Now, they made an exception for Jews, but when they started to realize that Christianity was not just a split off of the Jews, that it was a new religion, and that we refused to worship other gods, we refused to pay essentially taxes, tribute to Caesar. In in worship to him, we paid taxes to Rome, but we would not pay taxes to Caesar as a god. We would not worship at Saturnalia and at other things, other festivals that were paganistic, and we would not worship at these temples. They said that we were denying the gods and we were atheists. They called us incestuous. I think you can see where that would come from. It's because we call each other brother and sister. Even our wife is also our sister, my sister in Christ, right? So that was a misunderstanding of our brotherly love that we have. They said that we would kill our own children. Where did that come from? Well, there was this activity called lustration. Lustration, uh, which has been used for other purposes later, but in Roman times, uh, childbirth, uh, they would essentially go through a ritual with that baby where they would bring them to a temple and they would go through this process of sacrifice. And and this is, by the way, exactly where infant baptism came from, that idea. In fact, many of the practices that are practiced in the Catholic Church and denominations throughout the world, many of them have roots in paganism and in the idea of taking pagan religions and merging them with the church to make it more palatable to more people so that we can control those people. And Christians would not perform lustration. We would not take our children to the temple of Zeus and sacrifice animals over that child. Well, if in Rome you had a baby and they had some sort of a problem or you just did not want your child, it was allowed to not perform lustration, and then you could leave them exposed. You could put them outside, and they would either die, or somebody would take them and agree to raise them as essentially slaves to them. That was okay to do in Rome. It wasn't thought highly of, as you might imagine. And so when they said Christians won't perform lustration, therefore they are probably leaving their babies out and exposing them, right? So they spread that about us. And of course, cannibals, we see this even in John six fifty three, when Jesus teaches that unless you eat my flesh, drink my blood, you have no part in me. And many people are like, what is he talking about, right? And some of them said, this is a hard teaching. We're going to leave. This is not, we want no part of this. They misunderstood the symbolism that Jesus was talking about. Well, later, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, that's exactly what we're doing, right? Symbolically, we're taking the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, right? Using that terminology, people would misunderstand that and say that we were cannibalistic, So those are some of the the accusations that early people made against the church and attacked us. Also, very early, you start to see a falling away. 
We see in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, so we are still in the first century here. It says, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, right? This idea of apostasy, Jude 3 and 4 says, you should earnestly contend for the faith. Why do we need to earnestly contend for the faith? Because there are going to be those that attack us, right? That introduce false doctrines and false ideas. Where is that going to come from? Well, we look at Acts chapter 20. And in Acts chapter 20 and verses 29 and 30, it reads like this, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. We're going to be attacked from without. That's going to happen. But where does Paul say here that there's going to be grievous wolves from among your own people? Your own leadership is going to attack the flock. They're going to introduce false doctrines. And that's what we see over and over again. It's talked about in 1 Timothy 4 verses 1 through 3, where they're forbidding to marry and forbidding of certain foods. Now, this is repeated later in the Catholic Church, right? Priests, the Pope, they're not allowed to what? They're not allowed to get married, right? And they forbid the eating of certain foods. Now, not anymore. They've changed that. But it used to be where you could only have fish on Fridays, right? Even at school, you'd go to the cafeteria, and they wouldn't serve meat On Fridays, they would have fish for the Catholics, right? Because they forbid of certain foods. This is predicating that. This is prophesying about that, but also about others. The Catholics were not the first to do that. That happened early on in the second and third centuries. There were splinter groups that started forbidding people to marry. They said, you should be like Jesus and not be married. And they said, there are certain foods that you should not eat. We need to be more like the Jews and go back to having clean and unclean types of food. Very early on, there were people who were trying to do that. And then the Bible constantly is talking about divisions, right? And how we need to be unified and all say the same thing. 1 Corinthians 1.10, no divisions, right? Speak the same thing. Well, what was the problem that they were dealing with? Some were following Apollos, some were following Paul, some were saying, I'm just following Jesus. And what does Paul say? Was Paul crucified for you? What are you following me for? You know, we're to follow Jesus. But you can see the seeds of denominationalism, right? It leads to things like people following Martin Luther and calling themselves Lutheran. Eventually, that's where we get to from that type of thinking. These so-called early church fathers, some of them are exactly the leaders that introduced some of these ideas. And I think that we can see, as, as we look at, at how some of these ideas came into the church, sometimes they had good intentions, right? They changed things about the way the church should be, the way Jesus set up the church, 
because they had good intentions. They saw a situation and they said, well, I understand that, that Jesus said this and the apostles said this, but I have this other idea. And we see that introduced over and over again. Let's bring more, we, we want to convert more pagans. And Paul said we should be all things to all people. Let's bring some altar tables in because altar tables are a thing that they use in paganism. So it won't hurt anything to start having altar tables. It won't hurt us to have some holidays, holy days, that we convert uh, from paganism into Christian holidays. Let's make Christian holidays like Christmas and Easter. These are, are both come from pagan holidays. Christmas comes from Saturnalia, and Easter comes from the spring fertility festival in uh, Romanism. And you see this from things like that we still use today. Rabbits and eggs don't have a lot to do with uh, you know, the resurrection of Jesus. The idea of let's have a separate priesthood and clergy system. We're not all priests. We're not all saints. Let's set up certain people who are saints, certain people who are priests, and let's have a laity. That is, all the people who are not as educated and not as wise as I am. I'm going to be the priest and they're going to be the laity. That idea is introduced. That's an idea directly from paganism. Rituals and different clothing for this priestly class. We see that. The idea of original sin so that we can introduce infant baptism. That idea comes directly from lustration. And very early on in the second century, there are these divisions. We see them. They're, they're known as Gnostics. Uh, there's introduction of that even in the New Testament. They, there's the seeds of it starting to happen, and they're preaching against it. But by the second century, some of those seeds have taken root, and we're dividing the kingdom. The Montanists, the Manasseans, the Novantians. We don't hear a lot of those terms today, right? But in the second century, this was the denominationalism of the day. These were all people who taught different things about Jesus, about baptism, about introducing ideas from paganism. The first big one came from a guy who I believed really did mean well. I believe that he meant well when he introduced this idea that there really should not be a group of elders that are oversee a congregation. There really should be one guy who's over that congregation. And here's why he said that. And he argues it in letters that he writes to the churches. He says, look, the Romans are, are coming in to our congregations and they are finding the leaders and they are rounding them up and they are killing them. Wouldn't it be better if instead of multiple leaders, we just had one guy, right, who's in charge? And, and they'll come, and they'll just take that one guy and kill him and persecute him. And then we'll put another guy. It'll help us preserve the churches. That's the argument he makes in all of these letters. And guess what? He was the one guy in Antioch. And the Romans captured him, and he was sailing to Rome to be tried, where he was convicted and killed. And all the way, along the way, he's sending letters to the churches Arguing, look, I'm in this exact position. And isn't it better that I was the one guy in charge in Antioch in the second century 
and I'm the only one who's going to be killed instead of all this group. In fact, if you take that logic to its extent, wouldn't it be even better if you just had one guy over multiple congregations, right? A whole area. I mean, even better, let's have one guy over the entire church, the Pope, the Father, right? This idea, he could be the representation of Jesus on earth. That's where that idea leads to. But the seed of it was right there in the second century, and I believe he had good intentions. But when we mess with the plan of the church, which it's not hard to see the plan of the church. 1 Timothy 3 has qualifications of elders. Titus has the qualification of elders. 1 Timothy 3 also has the qualifications of deacons. So we can see what the plan for the church was. But when you pervert that, it leads down the road. It may seem good at first. It leads to bad things. Anytime you pervert the word of God and go about your own understanding, you know, there's a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to destruction. There were opponents to all of this. This guy, Tertullian, said, no, we do not need to do that. We do not need to have a bishop, one elder that's over an entire congregation or over a group of congregations. We need to fight against that. And he wrote a book against it. And he also denounced following things like Saturnalia and these holy days that people were doing, these holy days that they were converting into Christianity and that that made fully happened in the 4th and 5th centuries. He argued against that all the way back in the 2nd century. And we look at the Great Commission. It was carried out in the 1st century. Romans 1.8 says, Your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. They had reached out by the time that Romans was written, and they were going to the far reaches of the world. You know, there's good evidence that the gospel had reached India, had reached China, and had reached England. Now, we're going to concentrate a lot of our history that we're going to look at on the English church, England Scotland, Ireland. And the reason we do that is because it's easily approachable for us because most of the documents are or have been translated into English. But I want you to understand that as we're looking at England early on and throughout this time period, the same things are happening in France or happening in Spain or happening in India or happening all the way in China the same types of things that we're going to be looking at in England because it's easily approachable history for us, we're going on throughout the world. And we just don't have time to look at all of that. But the Great Commission had instructed them, we have to push the gospel out to all people. We have to reach as many people as we can. And we see the earliest record of Christianity arriving in Britain by the year 37 A.D., Now think about that. Jesus died in 30. Seven years later, they've already pushed. You know, they didn't have airplanes and trains. This is difficult. And England was not England like we think of. England was the edge of the Roman Empire, really the edge of the civilized world. In fact, they didn't even conquer all of England. That's why eventually they built Hadrian's Wall. You can see it right here. 
because they never conquered all of this. Right? And they said, we, we're Rome. We're bringing good things. We're bringing roads and civilization to you. Well, sometimes people don't want roads and civilization. Sometimes people want to be their own people, right? So Rome was never able to totally conquer all of England. They never conquered all of Ireland. But Christianity, because Rome pushed there, was opened up to them. Eusebius, writing in the 4th century, wrote, And some have crossed the ocean and reached the Isles of Britain. Gildas, who is a historian from around the time of about 564, he wrote that the Britons received the gospel under Tiberius, the emperor whom Christ suffered. Tiberius died in 37. So before Tiberius died, the gospel had already reached the edge of the Roman Empire in England. He said, in the haunts of the Britons, inaccessible to the Romans, but have been subjugated to Christ. So they even reached beyond Hadrian's Wall. They're even pushing Christianity into these paganistic areas, these what they called barbarian areas. Christianity was moving in that direction. And we see that in the 2nd century and 3rd century. By the 4th century, we have what's referred to as Pelagianism. That's because of this guy, Pelagius. Pelagius lived between 354 and 420, and he defended the idea of having free will. He opposed infant baptism, and he stood in opposition to what was becoming the Catholic Church. There were strong, doctrinally sound churches in Britain in the early 5th century. And that brings me to St. Patrick. And the reason why, when I was talking to Christy, she wanted me to preach uh, this lesson at this time. Uh, If you look at this so-called St. Patrick, right, I think that Catholics would be pretty shocked to learn the true history of Patrick. Uh, He's a really interesting person. And his history has been changed and perverted by the victors. Who gets to write history? Well, the ones who win the wars, right? Whoever wins the war, that's the one who gets to write what happened. And they get to write their version of what happened, and that's what becomes history. But there are some original documents of St. Patrick written in his own hand. There is a letter that he wrote, and there is the so-called Confession of St. Patrick. The Confession of St. Patrick is is what some people would do at the end of their life. They would write their confession. And what this is, is they're saying, look, I'm a sinner and I've been saved by Jesus. And here is what I believe after my lifetime of study. This is my confession. Patrick wrote one of those. He starts it off by saying, my name is Patrick. I'm a sinner, a simple country person, and the least of all believers. My father was Calpornius. He was a deacon. His father was Pontitus, an elder in the church. That's how he starts off his letter, his confession. And as you read through it, it sounds more and more like the church. It's really interesting. Later, of course, Patrick founded 
a lot like Paul, lots of churches throughout Ireland, right? Later, Pelagianism is what the Catholic Church called that. By 643, so Patrick died in 461. By 643, the Catholic Church has become pretty powerful, and yet there's Ireland that stands in their way of world domination. There were churches of Christ in Ireland that stood in opposition to the Catholic Church. And in the 7th century, they declare all-out war on the church. They send armies to Ireland. They destroy church buildings. They burn libraries. They kill people who stand in opposition to them. And they change and rewrite history. They start saying that Patrick was a saint in the Catholic Church. And you should follow us. You should be in the Catholic Church. They write up myths about him chasing off the snakes out of Ireland, right? That's all myth that they invented to convince people that you should no longer be part of the Church of Christ. You should join the Catholic Church and follow us. And if you don't, we will kill you. And we will take over your buildings. I think this is a good time for me to tell the zebra story. Bet you didn't expect me to say that. <laughs> so this is the, what I call the zebra story. I came across this, uh, I watched it on YouTube, and I've thought a lot about it. You know, zebras are camouflaged. Now, you wouldn't think that. You'd think lions are camouflaged, right? Lions are the same color as the grass, and they are camouflaged to their territory. But biologists who study zebras... They found some interesting things. So if you're going to study zebras and you're out there looking at a herd of zebras, you know, zebras aren't by themselves. They're in a herd, right? And if you are studying a zebra, you're going to concentrate on one zebra and you're going to watch his behavior and you're going to note it. And what they noticed was they're observing this zebra. They look down to write something. They look up and they're like, now which zebra was that that I was looking at? They're camouflaged to the herd, zebras are. So, if you want to study the zebras, you really need to be able to identify them. So they decided what they would do is they would catch one, mark them with red paint on their backside, and then they could follow that one zebra. That sounds really smart. Except you know what they found? Is that every time they marked a zebra, the lions killed that one every time. Now, we always think about lions attacking, right, the weak or the small. You know why they do that? It's not, not that they prefer eating weak and small zebras. It's that they can identify that one. It's not even that it's easier to catch. It's that they can zero in on that one because they're different than all the other zebras. So when they marked a nice healthy zebra with a big red splotch on his back, the lions are like, hey, let's eat that one. (laughs) Now, I think that teaches us a lot about human nature. I think that teaches us that when everybody is going with the crowd and someone else is standing out, that's the one the lions go after. You know, Satan is talked about in the scripture as being like a roaring lion looking for the one whom he may devour. He's going to attack the weak, right? He's going to attack the lame. 
and the young in Christ. But he's also going to attack us because we are singled out from the crowd. So what I said earlier about we try to live peaceably with all men, right, as much as it's in us. We're trying to be good people, good to our community, good to those around us, brotherly love. We don't strike back, right? We pray for our enemies. And yet over and over again, what happens to us? They come in and they take our buildings and they burn our libraries and our history and they take over and they push us underground. Next week, we're going to look at the church as it goes underground, as it has to hide from the Catholic Church. And we're going to look at little bits of history from that, but I want, I want you to see a pattern that happens. It happened to Jesus. Jesus was perfect, and he was loving, and he was kind. But they killed him, right? It happened to Stephen. He was loving, and he was kind. He reached out to them with the gospel, and he told them what they needed to do to be saved, and they killed him, right? It happened to Patrick. He was trying to follow, I believe, the New Testament church. He was trying to be the New Testament church. They later come in, and they burn those congregations, and they steal their libraries. They kill people and try to convert them to Catholicism. And it's going to happen again as we look through the history not just Catholics, but it happens in other ways, and it's happening today. They will take our buildings, take our treasury, push us out, and we go underground. It happens over and over again in history, and we are not immune to it. And that's the price we pay for being unique, right? The Bible says that Christians are unique. We stand out from the crowd. We don't just go along with what everybody's doing. And that's part of the price that we pay for being Christians. But we're able to, if we are faithful, even unto death, even if we have to die, there's a crown of righteousness for us in heaven. This morning, I think most of you are probably members of the church. You have obeyed Christ and you've put him on in baptism and you're following his way. But if you're not, we would encourage you to do that, encourage you to study with one of us, and we'll show you the way. If you're a Christian, but you have not stood out from the crowd, you have not been living the way you should, you've been following the world, we would encourage you to make that right today. It won't be an easy path, but it is one that we will help you with. We'll be your brothers and sisters along that path and help you along the way. If either one of those is the case for you this morning, Please make that right. Please come forward and make it known. And we'll pray with you and for you and help you as we stand and as we sing.